Well, hey everybody, uh, welcome back to Safe Haven Online. Man, I miss you guys. Um, I hope you're doing well. You're being prayed for, you were loved, and um, I miss you. Uh, we all miss you. And so, let's jump back into Matthew. So, Matthew chapter 17 is where we're at in our ongoing journey through this gospel. And uh, while you're flipping there, just to, kind of as a recap, I guess, we'll remember that in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus has healed all kind of people, everybody they've brought to Him. Um, he's also fed 4,000 people with just a few small fish. We got to chapter 16, and he's received from Peter this statement that the whole gospel's built upon, where Jesus is confessed to be by Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, and upon that statement, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. This is a big moment. And then last week even, right? So quite literal mountaintop moment in chapter 17 where Jesus is on this mountain, and Moses is there, Elijah's there, God the Father Himself is speaking aloud. And in this moment, Jesus is transfigured, His, His, His glowing, His deity shines. And, and so these are these big, big monumental moments that we've been through. And I guess you could say the snowball is rolling. Um, but like snowmen that we build in Alabama that come to a screeching halt the next day uh, when they melt, even Jesus' mountaintop moment is going to come to a screeching halt. So if you've ever wondered uh, what can put a damper on Jesus' mountaintop experiences or, or what melts that for Him, well, today we're going to find out in this passage. So let's dive in. Matthew 17. So verse 14 says, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Him and kneeling before Him said, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he is an epileptic. Literally the Greek where there is lunatic. We'll get back to that in a second. And he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Let's pause there. Now we've already seen two problems. Number one, there's a problem with this little boy. So again, literally the word is lunatic, meaning lunar. He's moonstruck. And so... What they thought was that he seized and jumped into the fire and jumped into the water and had all these strange symptoms based off of the ebb and flow of the moon. And that's what they believed during this time. They, they didn't have a concept of epileptic like, like we would have today. Um, so, interestingly, these same symptoms are what we see in the Gadarene demoniac where Jesus cast out legion into the pigs. You remember that, right? So, number one, there's this problem with this little boy. And then number two, we see this problem with the disciples. So Jesus is coming down from the mountain off this great moment to these two problems. The problem with the, with the disciples was that apparently these are the left that didn't get to go on the field trip up to the top of the mountain. Um, but they're not being lazy. They're doing work. But the problem is that success that they had seen in healing before, they're now finding themselves unsuccessful in. They've hit some form of kryptonite and they want to know what's going on. And Jesus is going to reveal that to us as we keep going. So let's continue. Verse 17. And so Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And now, so in this moment, you can hear the frustration of Jesus. He's, he's had a belly full of this and he's about to erupt. And he uses a couple of words here that I think is good for us to think through. Again, what causes Jesus' frustration? Number one, he uses the word faithless. That doesn't mean that every individual was unbelieving, 
but it means that unbelief was the aroma. It's what the generation smelt like. It was what marked the generation. Number two, what frustrated Jesus was he used the word not only faithless, but twisted. In other words, he said, perversion is what you choose. Um, you don't choose virtue, you choose your vices. Um, you don't choose morality, you choose what pleases you. This is what marked them. And it's not that truth was not available, it's just that they chose to reject the truth. And then he does this series of how longs. How long will I be with you? How long will I bear with you? Which shows us that faithlessness and twistedness in a generation causes emotional pain to Jesus. It disappoints Him. It disgruntles Him. It, it disgusts Him. It displeases Him. Now, does this generation, is the question, does this generation sound like any other generation that you know and that I know? And it does. It's, it's the do what feels best for you generation. It's the uh, Christian disciplines are just optional generation. I'm telling you, God's being gracious to us in this moment by removing idols in our lives. He's removed sports. He's removed travel. He's removed busyness. He's removed all these things. And I believe that it's in His grace in many ways like this that He's begging us. Come. He's, he's bidding us and begging us to come and to reorient our lives around nothing more than just the gospel. I believe that. When this happens, this faithlessness and twistedness, when this happens in the life of a person or a generation at, at large, you can always bet that unbelief is crouching at the door. It's creeping there. It's ready to, to bite. It's that old phrase that what one generation accepts or tolerates, the next generation will embrace. And that is the very reason that we shouldn't be shocked when if we express a flippant faith that we find our offspring expressing complete faithlessness models that. And so this frustrates Jesus. So what does he do? What does he do about it? In this moment, surely he's going to be like Papa and say, I've had all I can stand and I can't stand no more. And he is about to uh, wipe the floor with bodies, okay? Surely he's about to get a royal beat down in this moment. So let's continue together. Basically, never mind my anguish for now. Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Instantly being from that very moment, right? So this was the polar opposite of what the disciples had experienced. Now that is going to spark a big question among the disciples. It's going to sound something like this. Jesus, you just said one word. We tried everything and nothing happened. And, and upon your very word, all of a sudden, this boy is cured. So it goes on to say this. Verse 19, So then the disciples came to Jesus privately, and they said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, here we go again, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Now the contrasts here a lot of times get confusing, but if you'll take it slow, you'll see the beauty in it. In terms of size, 
the disciples were big, but they had little faith. Basically, they had turned into self-controlled magicians who were just kind of out doing magic tricks. They just expected it, that they had the power to do something, right? But the mustard seed, though it was small, has massive faith. It just exists as a seed, knowing that it'll never grow or produce anything unless the Lord does it, completely dependent upon the Lord. So that's the contrast in terms of size. But there's also a contrast in terms of quality. The disciples have weak faith, but the mustard seed has a strong, firm faith. It, it, it depends to grow into a tree based on the faith that it has that the Lord is the one that will produce the tree out of it. You see the difference going on there? So faith like, there's that word again, like a mustard seed, it's consistent. It's concrete. It's constant. It's a faith that's all in, and it's not all in just based on when it feels like it wants to be in or not. It's just in. It's not even a faith that wants to jump in with holiday seasons maybe. It's just all in because it's enamored with the power of the Lord. So a flippant faith, like the disciples had, finds itself often handcuffed. I mean, it finds itself stale and it finds itself unfruitful when it begins to depend on itself, when it kind of dilutes and mixes in with the rest of the world. But a firm faith, a firm faith like the mustard seed, man, it can do wonders. It can cast out demons. It can see mountains moved. Don't get tripped up on that either. That's a proverb. Here they are right here. Uh, it, it just simply means it was a way to say uh, we've seen God move and do the miraculous is what this means. Not literally that you can cast a physical mountain into the sea or move it, something like that. In other words, faith that is rooted firmly is a faith that has a personal trust in God at all times that's active and not just passive. Um, maybe I can illustrate it this way. Me and Julie Beth had an old Jeep CJ7, 1986. She was just a beauty. And I know many, many of you guys have heard me talk about this a lot, but um, here's a picture of it, actually. And uh, so this Jeep it had zero rust. It was awesome. It was a talking point. Um, it, it brought up great conversations. It was just cool. I mean, if you could find one that you wanted to restore, this is the one. I mean, it had nothing to be done to it, but it did have one major problem. And that one problem was that the engine was completely blown. The thing that drove it, the thing that made it usable was blown. It's so blown that it had to be taken out and, and sat on the floor. Um, that's what's going on. So on the one hand with the disciples, their engine is blown. And they're confused as to why the engine's blown. They did have a faith. There's no doubt about that. That's why they went out to try to heal the boy. That's something they had experienced before. So there were nothing new. But they were shocked that they couldn't. They were shocked that their engine was messed up. So what is it that can make their engines come alive again? And my question to you and I is, if you find yourself stale, fruitless, wondering the same things as the disciples. Lord, where are you? What can make that engine run again and be clicking on all cylinders? Well, to see that, we've got to go somewhere else. In Mark 9, 29, we're going to see the exact same historical account, um, but with one more added statement. 
And so in Mark 28 is where the disciples asked Jesus privately, why could we not cast it out? But in Mark 9.29, he answers them and he says this. Now, again, listen, I think this is the marker to what does a faith look like that is fruitful, that is not twisted, that is not faithless or unbelieving, okay? Verse 29, and Jesus says to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. I think that's good, man. As we consider this together, let's, let's just kind of think through this. So we see a couple of things. Number one is this, a faith that has an engine running, a faith that is active, um, will be marked by the practice of prayer itself. I think we see that in this passage. In other words, Jesus says, you want to be a person, disciples, who have great faith? You want to know why you couldn't cast it out? You got to pray, and you didn't. You just went on and tried to do it on your own. You, you thought you could do it on your own, so I let you go try. And then look what that got you. If, if, if you want my power in your life, Jesus says, if you want to be marked as one whose engine is running, then you'll bear the accent marks of dependence through personal prayer and personal fasting. James heard that from Jesus, but we know that James continued on and this took root in James's life because James became known as Old Camel Knees James. Now I know that sounds silly, but I'm going to read you a quote and I'm going to butcher this guy's name. Um, his name was Hegesippius. He was born, or actually we know he was alive around 120 A.D., so he would have been right on the heels of the death of the apostles. But here's what he writes about James, and here's how we know that James's faith came back alive and what we can learn about prayer through this. He says of James, James alone was permitted to enter into the holy place, for he not, wore not woolen but linen garments, and he was in the habit of entering alone into the temple and was frequently found upon his knees begging forgiveness for the people, so that his knees became hard like those of a camel, in consequence of his constantly bending them in worship of God and asking forgiveness for the people." Man, that is a faith that is alive. Which should not shock us that that's why James goes on to write in James chapter 9, that great statement that's often quoted about prayer and its role in our lives as people of faith. James 5, 16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. He lived it. He experienced it. He knew the power of it, and he wanted us to experience it as well in the same way that he experienced it. So number one, a person of faith expresses just the, the practice of prayer itself. But number two, um, a person of faith understands the point of prayer. Not just praise, but understands the point of prayer. Let me explain what I mean by that. The misconception of prayer is often this, that it's a means to escape reality, right? So we need the Lord to do something or to show up in a brand new way. And so we kind of go into a room by ourselves and, and just escape reality for a moment. 
That's not the point of prayer. According to Jesus, the point of prayer is quite the opposite of that. Not the misconception, but the truth. The truth is that prayer is a means to exalt Christ in the midst of our reality. Not to be separated from it, but to say, I need you now here in the midst of my reality. Not do something other cause, but join me. I need not necessarily what you do, but I need, I need you. I need you, Jesus. So it's this personal dependence and this heightened sense of, of knowing Jesus that we need. So what does true faith look like in the midst of a twisted and faithless generation? What does that practically look like, nuts and bolts? I'm going to pop a couple of things on the screen, and I think that it'll make a lot more sense if we just get pinpoint practical. Number one, prayer in true faith will have a, it'll just have a sense of urgency. Um, it's like that woman that we read about in chapter 15, verse 27, who, who said, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off the tables. So it's, we approach the Lord in prayer with a sense of urgency. We were, approach the Lord, number two, with a sense of dependence. You remember Jacob wrestling with God, right? Uh, Genesis 32. And as he's wrestling with the angel of the Lord, Jacob won't let him go. And so much so that the angel has to dislocate his hip. But the point is this. Jacob says, I'm going to keep on holding on until you bless me. <laughs> that we would be a people who pray in that type of way. I'm going to hold on and keep on praying until you do something and meet with me, Lord. True prayer, uh, exalted and manifested in true faith, will have a sense of passion. Right? It's, it's not like Larry the Cable Guy who does his little stick. It drives me nuts where he says, uh, oh, and Lord, be with the pygmies in Africa. It's just flippant nonsense. Um, and sometimes our prayers can be like that, rehearse just ritualistic prayers. No, no, no. True faith will have a sense of passion and crave meeting with the Lord in genuine prayer. And then I would argue this too, that prayer of a, of a faithful person um, expresses a sense of importance, right? It's, it's like the time that we invest in binging and other things. We binge watch ten TV shows, we binge eat, we binge play, we binge talking, we binge scrolling through social media, we binge practicing our favorite hobby, we binge working, we binge spending. When is the last time that you've stayed up all night in fervent prayer? If I'm just going to be honest with you, for me, it's typically in moments of crisis. Not always, but typically in moments of crisis. Me and Julie Beth have an issue going on that we need to pray through, or uh, one of our kids is having surgery that I, I, I just have to meet with the Lord, or um, a massive decision for our church, something like that. It's usually in moments of crisis. When's the last time that you have fasted fervently? Not related to a church called a fasting. That's, that's, that's too easy, right? We do that from time to time. But when is the last time you fasted just because you want to know the Lord in a more personal, intimate, fresh way? That, according to Jesus, is the engine that cranks the car of true and genuine faith. Now, the tricky part, admittedly, is how to not let that become formulaic. In other words, if I pray and fast, then Lord, you will move your hand. That's, that's the tricky part. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. 
What I'm talking about is what I think Jesus is talking about. It's just about being so enamored with the specific person of the Lord that you just got to be with Him, which manifests itself in prayer and fasting. So I pray that this season, yeah, the season that we're in worldwide right now, I pray that this season is marked by a renewed, active, living faith that is expressed in your life, in my life, in our church family's life. I pray that, man. Uh, one that doesn't cop out with statements like, uh, yeah, I pray without ceasing. And you only say that because you can't pinpoint a time when you sat down to fervently pray with the Lord. That's just a cop-out sometimes, right? I pray that this season is marked by one when our kids again are asked what went on during this time that our kids say, I don't remember a lot, but I remember that we prayed as a family. I pray that's true in my life, and I pray that's true in your life. This is we Let's do this. Draw a line in the sand and, and do this as families at Safe Haven Church. Do it right now in just a minute. It's a moment you're about to have to pray. Um, and it's a moment that we'll be able to say, the, the Lord moved so many mountains in my life. I pray that this moment is marked by that because of prayer and fasting for sure. Uh, but one that we'll just be able to say, God brought revival to our lives and to our church um, through His grace of letting us see our need to meet with Him through prayer and fasting. So yeah, let's take the truth of this passage and let's get at it, Safe Haven. Um, let's express our faith in such a way, I guess, that it becomes the, the means by which we see God move His secret hand. But not because we want to see His hand move, but because we just want to be sitting in His hands, I guess you could say. So whether that means casting out demons or moving mountains, that doesn't matter. Um, what matters is that we will worship Him as a faithful and straight generation.